There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? The night was darker than burnt pudding. Smoke from my 25 center hung in the air, threatening to choke the first dumb chump blind enough to wander into it and ask me anything. Go away was the name of my cologne when I bothered to wear it. Can't a guy wash his troubles down with cheap booze and Tic Tacs and peace? She'd done me wrong. Dead wrong. And all I had to show for it was a hole where my heart used to be. Or was that my spleen? I, I can't remember. All I can remember is the scent of her personality, lingering like corn nuts at the bottom of a bag. She stuck in me the way those, those little things in popcorn sticking your teeth. I couldn't see past her eventuality. What choice did I have? There was a show to do and a big monkey breathing down my neck. Oh, that's the way of the world, isn't it? We all have to bow down to big monkey, our ties caught in the machinations of the cruel Gilligans of this two-bit world. And me, I'm just a Joe. Well, a Mike, actually. And, and this, this podunk podcast is Max Mike Movies. Ooh, we're so noir, it hurts. At least we are in our new series, Walk the Dark Street, where we're going to examine noir old and new. First up, Sunset Boulevard. Some may question this film's inclusion in the list of noir, but as we'll see in the definition I found, it fits quite well. Or does it? Sitting in the pocket of my cheap suit is that bulge of protection. Max, put down that gat, Levine. Give us a quip, Max. God, do you know how much lint you have in here? <laughs> and I am the whiskey to his chaser, Mike Four Noses Loose. Before we get to Sunset Boulevard, let's get to you. Poll question. Hang on, I want to know who you're calling a big monkey. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if you'd like the part, it's open. <laughs> big monkey, you. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> By the way, Max is, not now. <laughs> Max is not gay. Last episode, as you may recall, we had a question with a couple of provisos, quid pro quos. We wanted to know who your favorite cinematic president was, as long as their name didn't end with Freeman or Sheen. You said these. Oh, mine was Charlie Sheen. Uh, ben Vereen, shrink to the size of a lima size bean. Size of a lima bean. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Pelkey was up first with, quote, Harrison Ford, Air Force One, the end, end quote. Oh, well, I guess yep. that's it. Thanks, We're Becca. done. Good night, everybody. Oh, wait. There's actually oh, yeah. more after that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Gasparoni's response was, quote, Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln, I thought was phenomenal, end quote. Oh, nice one. Thanks, Nick. Apparently, he wasn't alone. Tyler Stewart followed with, quote, second Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln for a fictional president, Michael Douglas in The American President, end quote. Oh, yeah. oh cool beans. Thanks, Tyler. Uh-oh, we, uh, we, we might have a problem Nick Hoffman stated, quote, um, in Dave, hilarious. Who? Kevin uh, Kwan. Sorry, what was that name? Kevin Kwan. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Klein. <laughs> yes, Kevin Klein, for those who didn't get it. Max's favorite actor. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Nick. My yes. nemesis. Yeah. Dave. Can I get a Dave out of you? Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Dave! Thank you. Is back with much answer. Quote, Oh dear, another favorite. There is so much one can do with the presidential role, and our scriptwriters have not explored it in the depth that I would like. I am always on the lookout for interesting president characters. 
Mary McDonald as Laura Roslin, Battlestar Galactica, is my favorite president ever, but I guess that's not president of the U.S. I love all of the U.S. presidents in 24. Dennis Haysbert as David Palmer was archetypal, charismatic, competent, and a true leader. One could almost argue that he paved the way for Mr. Obama because he was so convincing. Cherry Jones as Allison Taylor, indecisive and incompetent. Gregory Itzen was great as Charles Logan, so eminently slimy. Also, Billy Bob Thornton in Love Actually played the role of president to perfection in a bit role that is such a well-done and scathing commentary on U.S. arrogance. And of course, special mention to John Alexander as Teddy Roosevelt Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace. I was <laughs> off to Panama every chance I got for weeks after I saw that movie. Can we do prime ministers next week? End quote. Sadly, the answer is no. But thanks, Dave. We love those big answers. Very cool. Yeah. Kelly Cooper kind of snuck in responding to Dave, quote, I came to say Dennis Haysbert in 24. Definitely my favorite, end quote. Thanks, Kelly. Bruce Heard Jr. said, quote, Ralph Bellamy portraying FDR in the made-for-TV movies Winds of War and War of Remembrance. Wars of Remembrance. <laughs> end quote. Ooh, made-for-TV. Thanks, Buzz. Adam Mark was next with, quote, comic Meryl Streep as the corrupt and hopelessly short-sighted President Orlean in Don't Look Up 2021, Boy, consumed yeah. by worries of winning the re-election while the world literally ends. See our entire episode on Don't Look Up. Streep sells what could have been a two-dimensional villain role into something both comedic and enraging, demoralizing and sinister. The comparison to Trump is inescapable, but Streep skillfully ensures it remains solely a subtle critique. The character's end is particularly satisfying. Serious. Paul Giamatti as John Adams, 2008, a magnum opus of a performance showcasing our second president's courage, vision, and morality, along with his insecurities and humble self-doubt amidst the flawed and preening divas who would one day become the flawless founding fathers. Huh. Giamatti would earn a well-deserved Emmy and a Golden Globe for his performance. He and Laura Linney as Abigail Adams have amazing chemistry. It's well worth a rewatch, end quote. Well, that's one of your close personal friends. That is my <laughs> close personal friend, Paul Giamatti, yes, who I will someday meet. <laughs> Always love those well-thought-out answers. Thanks, Adam. Very nice. Val Coons, go ahead, Max. Say it. Fine. <laughs> I, I, uh, foot cue steps, damn it! Well done. She wrote... Quote, Harrison Ford, Air Force One, and Henry Fonda as Lincoln, I forget the name of the movie, end quote. I think she means young Mr. Lincoln. Sure it's not old Mr. Lincoln? Yes. Okay. Uh, seems Honest Abe has a lot of fans. Thanks, Val. Yeah. Rob Butler offered up, quote, Bill Pullman, Independence Day, end quote. Ooh, that's an interesting uh, choice. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. I don't think we could ever get a president under 40, could we? <laughs> and um, We could. I think the, le the legal cutoff is 35. I believe you're correct. Thank you for the history lesson. Agatha Gasparoni responded, quote, Terry Crews as Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho in Idiocracy, end quote. Right. That's right. He's the president of America. Yeah. Not the United States of America. They've shortened it to just America. That certainly is a great presidential name. Thanks, Agatha. Tim Potter wrote, quote, Jack Nicholson in Mars Attacks, end quote. Ooh, that's, that's uh. an odd one. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. I particularly like Pierce Brosnan as a small dog, but that's just me. <laughs> uh, George Saulnier's choices were, quote, Peter Sellers in Dr. Strangelove. I also like oh. the guy in the 70s classic Colossus the Forbin Project, Gordon Pinsent, end quote. Ooh, Colossus wow. is, or at least it was, a hard movie to see, but well worth yeah. it. Thanks, George. Yeah. 
Charles Forsyth said, quote, George had the best answer, Peter Sellers. I have to put in an honorable mention for the Palin-esque president in Iron Sky, end quote. Oh, interesting. I don't know that one. Huh. Thanks, oh, Charles. Oh, yeah, it's Nazis on the moon. <laughs> well, that's where they should be. Because <laughs> that's where they saved Hitler's brain. It's true. <laughs> Mike Weaseldan seconds an earlier choice with, quote, Terry Crews is President Camacho in Idiocracy, end quote. Wow, two idiots. Only wow. two? Hmm. Thanks, <laughs> Weez. Dan Schaefer's choice was, quote, it was just a cameo, but President Widmark in Buckaroo Banzai, who I ah. just learned, was played by the late Ronald Lacey, who also played Arnold Tote, the Nazi with a melting face in Raiders of the Lost Ark, end quote. What? Wait, that was the same guy? Seriously? Huh. I had no idea. Me? Oh, boy, he did not age well. No, well, it's that weird bed he was in. Oh, wait, he wouldn't have aged that much at all. Those wait, movies came out almost came exactly first? the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dan. Seth Jacobs posted, quote, Michael Douglas in The American President, end quote. Ah, another vote for him. Yeah, that was a good one. Thanks, Seth. Brian Mundo, wait for it, wait for it, said uh, predictably. I know where this is going. <laughs> quote, so he was president of the Federated Territories, which I think included <laughs> what used to be the U.S. I would have to say Tommy <sighs> Lister Jr., he was President Lindbergh in, you guessed it, the Fifth Element, end quote. Eh, close enough for jazz. Thanks, well Slowbear. played. <laughs> <laughs> Angelo Patsalis wants to second, or no, wait. Third, Michael Douglas. Thanks, Angelo. Yeah. We got a front runner. Yeah. I think we have three Peter Sellers and three Michael Douglases. Yeah. So. Lastly, we have to head over to the website to hear from our friendly Canadian who obviously knows nothing about presidents as they are neither penguin nor walrus. Vince. Well, besides, uh, Canada doesn't have a president. I think they have an archduke. Sure. He adds a vote for, quote, President Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers, was <laughs> hilarious. Loved Sellers in that role, end quote. Thanks, O Tamer of the Penguin Pontoon. Hey, extra points for remembering his name, because I think his, I think the president's name in that movie is mentioned exactly once. Ah, uh, I've only seen the movie once, and it was back in the 80s, so I don't remember it that well. Wow. Well, but, I know. We, well, we got to see that one at some point. Yeah. It seems that Peter Sellers, who is a Brit, I believe, and therefore not qualified for the position, is one of the top favorites. Oh, he also seems to be dead. Hmm. You know, well, I don't think it actually says that you have to be alive to be president. <laughs> I'm not sure. There's only three things, and that's not one of them, so... Besides, not being qualified clearly didn't stop a certain president in our recent history. Yeah, I was going to say that hasn't stopped some people from trying. But who gets your vote, Max? Uh, I actually got to go with the... I like Jack Nicholson in Mars Attacks. <laughs> I just... You know, we still got two branches of the government going, and that ain't bad. <laughs> He is just having so much fun, and it's very, it's, I think, very an out of character portrayal, and he's just absolutely believable. Yeah. Alec. What about you? I, you know, I was, it was a toss up. It was either going to be that or Harrison Ford, just because I like a, a president that actually looks like he can do something. <laughs> now, yeah. do I really want a president that I think can, like, totally retake a plane away from, from uh, hostile stewardesses or whatever it was? <laughs> you know, do I want a two fist president? Probably not, but that was sort of that era where Harry could kind of do no wrong. Well, at least he didn't try to land the plane, because we know how that works out for Harrison Ford. Only twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, these were good. Yeah, yeah. I'll, so I'll, go, I'll, I'll give them an unequal billing there. Harrison Ford and Jack okay. Nicholson. And, and Nothing that wrong is, with a tie. No. And that is all well and good, and it was very good, but... Can you do it again? <laughs> Max doesn't think so. Me, I have Please, no. I have no doubts at all that you can answer. What is your favorite film noir? 
We're doing a bunch in this series, and perhaps yours will be among them, and heck, it's early enough, perhaps yours will give us an idea of something we weren't going to do. You never know. So yeah, well, perhaps yours will be among them. Uh, amongst. Uh, whatever. Right now, we got to swing back to Norma Desmond and... The Facts. Sunset Boulevard, budget $1.75 million, which is not a small amount in 1950. No. No. The take, $5 million, though really that number Ow. probably constantly climbs and does not include things like fees for making it. Well, well, we'll get to that. <clears throat> this movie is very meta, especially for its time, so there's going to be some trivia that reflects the real world and the studio world of that time. Yeah. Norma Desmond declares, quote, without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount Studios, end quote. Besides the fact that they're the studio that released this movie, Gloria Swanson was their top star for six years back in her day. Oddly, Swanson never made a movie in that Paramount. Her last movies were made for Paramount in the 20s at the studio's lot in Astoria, Queens. <laughs> Which Besides, I didn't she make most of her money from selling frozen dinners? No, no, that's not the same Swanson. Ask. I could have sworn. Max fired. Uh. <laughs> Gloria, unlike her character Norma Desmond, had long since accepted that her role in Hollywood had ended and had moved to New York to work in radio and eventually TV. Some of her contemporaries, whose stories are echoed in this movie, were not so calm about the whole thing. Both yeah. Mae Murray and Clara Bow had struggles with mental illness resulting from the pushes and pulls of fame, and Mary Pickford ended up living in seclusion. All three of those actors were inspiration for Norma Desmond. Yeah, that fits. Erich von Stroheim? You have to say it like that, sorry. Kind of plays himself. He was a director of silent era films, and one of them, Queen Kelly, starred Gloria Swanson and is the movie being shown in Desmond's own projection room. Yeah, that was also the one that I believe she fired him from. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Stroheim, sorry to jump in on this. That's fine. Stroheim also, he was he did a lot more as an actor than he did as a director, but he was famous for, when he was a director, he was terrifying. He'd scream at people. He, You know the image of the director in the jodhpurs and the riding yep. crop? And, that's him. Yeah. That's what he would do. And he would insist on like, period accurate costumes that would cost 20 times as much as they should have so he didn't last long as a director oh i loved him as mr freeze anyway he, that's the other german <laughs> the other german wow okay <laughs> otto preminger and eric von stroheim people get them mixed up all the time they were kind of contemporaries they had similar styles except preminger didn't scream at people he would just look at them until they died wild <laughs> Montgomery Clift was set to play the role William Holden got, but quit oh. two weeks before filming. His reasons? He'd already played a part like this in The Heiress, and his girlfriend of the time, Libby Holman, was also an older woman. She felt the movie would feel like a parody of their personal life and threatened to kill herself if Clift went through with the part. Oh, that's healthy. Yeah. Okay. And not at all like the movie. Oops! <laughs> I'm sorry. This movie's over 70 years old. If you haven't seen it, too bad for you. Yeah, seriously. Spoilers, forget it. Yeah. That film DeMille is working on, uh, that was real. That was 1949, oh. Samson and Delilah. Some of old Hollywood has faded like its memories, and the Desmond Mansion is one of those things. Its last owner, a Mrs. Getty, of those Gettys, got it when her husband bought it for her and then gave it to her when they divorced. She rented it to Paramount, they added a non-functional pool, and everyone went their own way. Sadly, on that site now, there is an office building made for Getty oh. Oil. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, you know. 
It happens. This is this is one of the things I'm sure you know because Max is big on Oscar trivia. This was one of only 13 movies to date to be non- nominated for all of the top Academy Awards, including Best yeah. Picture, Best Director, Screenplay, Best Actors, both supporting and leads. The other 12 are Mrs. Miniver, Johnny Belinda, Streetcar Named Desire, From Here to Eternity, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, see our entire episode on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Network, Coming Home, Red's Silver Lining Playbook, and American Hustle. Hmm. I'm sensing a series in there somewhere. Hmm. Billy Wilder and screenwriter Charles Brackett worked together on 17 films, but this was to be their last. A big argument over a montage sequence in this movie was said to be to blame. Yeah. Not a sequel, but an adaptation. See, someone, Andrew Lloyd, what's his name, decided this movie would make a great musical, and so they made one. It premiered he in was Lon- wrong. <laughs> it premiered in London in 1993, where it ran for over 1,500 performances. It then came to Broadway, showed for almost 1,000, and won a Tony for Best Musical Book and Score. So there. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we'll probably I come back to that. I saw this. Did, did you see it with uh, Glenn Close? I did not. I saw it. In the, it was a traveling cast in Minneapolis. If you get a chance, just if you like Glenn Coase, close, look for clips online. She's amazing. I didn't know I, she, she could sing. She probably could have saved it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Anyway. Gloria Swanson and Nancy Olson, who plays love interest Betty Schaefer, would reunite a quarter century later in Airport 1975. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood trickery! That shot of William Holden floating in the pool was not shot underwater. They placed, they placed a mirror at the bottom of the pool and shot from dry land. Trick me Those not, treacherous s- cinematographers. Sneaky bastards. I thought that was pretty cool. They didn't want to get the cameraman wet. <laughs> oh, that Billy Wilder, such a prankster. Seems he's been asked about the meaning of the dead chimp scene so often, he finally decided to come up with the supposedly shocking true life answer. When asked at a party that included Nancy Reagan, who was standing nearby, what the chimp was doing in the movie, Wilder answered quite loudly, quote, and I'm going to have to bleep this, don't you understand? She was f***ing the monkey before Joe Gillis came around. And oh, quote, God! <laughs> wow. Just, uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Billy Wilder, shame on you. <laughs> Although, you know, after like whatever 20 years of people asking the same dumb question, I can totally see it. Good for him, you know? I thought it was going to be something like, yeah, don't you understand? The monkey's soul went into her and you know, left the body behind. Sure. Louis B. Mayer, one of the many in the studio business who did not realize how deeply this film would dig into the realities of Hollywood, was quoted as, say, quoted as saying to Wilder, quote, You befouled your own nest. You should be kicked out of this country, you goddamn foreigner son of a bitch, end quote. Yeah, well, bite me, LB. Yeah, well, we're going to be getting into a lot of the... Uh, yeah, parts about Hollywood in a bit. Uh, also for the series, we wanted a definition of film noir, as it's often something that's a bit slippery, open to interpretation. I found this one in the, um, what do they call that thing? Oh, yes, the dictionary. <laughs> uh. It states, quote, a style or genre of cinematographic film marked by a mood of pessimism, fatalism, and menace. The term was originally applied by a group of French critics to American thrillers or detective films made in the period 1944 to 1954 and to the work of directors such as Orson Welles, Fritz Lang, and Billy Wilder. A uh. film marked by a mood of pessimism, fatalism, and menace, end quote. And I'd say this movie more than fits that definition. 
It's funny. The definition I found was pessimism, fatalism, and cynicism. Oh, yeah, that makes but sense. That's pretty much the same, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and Max, unless you're going to inject some bit of sunshine? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a ton of stuff, but I think it'll come in uh, or organically. Oh, the one thing I... D- the number of like little cameos and little inside jokes in this movie is unbelievable. Yeah, that's why I left them out. <laughs> when she visits the, the set for C.B. DeMille and the lighting guy recognizes her, calls him Hogeye. Mm-hmm. Guy's name is John Skins Miller. And the guy's one of the most prolific background players in Hollywood. He's been in a ton oh. of movies. Oh, good for him. There's uh, a ton of stuff like that, but yeah, it'll come up. Well, then I think it's time for Sunset. I mean the plot. Right? <clears throat> yeah. It's 1950, and down-and-out screenwriter Joe Gillis, played by William Holden, is doing a poor job of getting scripts bought and a poor job keeping ahead of the bill collectors. When two repo men show up for his car, he barely manages to fend them off and duck out, trying to sell his latest idea. When that goes sour, he's seen on the road in that car, and a brief chase ensues. After blowing out a tire, he ducks into a random driveway, one that will start him off on a series of events that will decide the rest of his life. The giant mansion he's pulled into belongs to none other than faded silent film star Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson. She has built walls to protect her from her adoring fans, the truth, and the present day. Convinced that she will eventually make a comeback, it seems perfect fate to her that a writer should show up at her place unannounced. She invites him in and to stay so he can work on her script, the one that will bring her back to where she belongs, in front of the camera. Realizing that she's both delusional and talentless, at least as a writer, Gillis, desperate for money, takes the job, little realizing that it's a live-in one. Without his knowing it, Max, Desmond's butler, played by Erich von Stroheim, see, you have to, it's just, that's how it happens. <laughs> yeah, you do. Has gone to his apartment, paid his back rent, and brought all his belongings to the great house. Gillis makes attempts to remove himself from this trap, but keeps being pulled back, both by slight feelings of concern, need of money, and an inability to cause the one final hurt that's going to send the aging actor over the edge. But a meeting with a friend's fiancé changes his mind. Not only has she found one of his old scripts that has enough ideas to make it worth rewriting, the two start to fall in love. Finally, unable to stand being kept in a decrepit cage any longer, Joe tries to make his escape. But Norma will have none of that, and uses the gun, with which she meant to take her own life, to shoot Gillis three times before he can step off the grounds of her estate. Finally, having lost that one last thread of reality, she's convinced to come along quietly as she believes that all the reporters and police assembled to take her away are the cameras and director for whom she's longed. The end. The film! (sighs) So, Max, did you see this when it came out in 1950? (laughs) I'm going to hurt you very badly, and you won't know when. Oh, calm down, big monkey. <laughs> I'm going to throw so much poop at you. Um, <laughs> That's what they do, Max. <laughs> I, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen this in an actual theater. I mean, because they Ooh. do show up every so often. It's, it's, especially, a, you know, it's a repertoire film house favorite. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I think I've seen it before, but it was on the small screen. Yeah. I'm not How about sh- you? I'm not sure. Uh, now that you mentioned it, I, there were so many opportunities that, did I see it at the Brattle? Did I see it at the Harvard Square? Did I see it at one of those big summer things you used to do at the Wang? I might have. Oh. I honestly yeah. don't know the first time I saw it. But 
We uh, thankfully, as big a movie as this is, and it is a big movie. The, oh boy! There's not as much cast to talk about. There's a bunch of people in here, as you pointed out. Yeah, a lot of but uh, the major characters there aren't. They're only like a handful. Yeah. So why don't we get through that so we can okay. get to the other big stuff? So William Holden. I want to know when Joe Gillis changed his name from Doby. <laughs> um, you, one might say never. <laughs> <laughs> William Holden was on the on the outs. His career was not doing well when he got cast in this, and this is the film that allowed him to be the big name or big male name for the 1950s because he would, and he would continue making films well into the 80s too. So, um, I think he does great. I think he does a great job. I on, for whatever reason, I just don't buy him as a writer. I don't look at him and or listen to the way he talks or what he does and think. Yeah, this guy's a writer. See, like, no, honestly, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Nancy Olsen. Ingenue girl, Betty Schaefer, yeah. or Nancy Olsen, who uh, I only know, the only place I, else I know her from is um, Airport Pollyanna. Airport 75? Oh. <laughs> no, Pollyanna. Uh, she strikes me as much more of a writer than he does. See, I do feel that he's a writer because you can, t- you can feel the sincere loss of spark that she has and that she reignites him with it's like every time she brings up reasons like oh you but you should do this you should do this he's like yeah been there done that and that's why i buy him as a writer because as we'll i'm sure talk about this film is a um well it's not disguised at all it is a very clear focused look at how things work in hollywood yeah it's and it is merciless yeah and it i love how you know nor they talk about how Norma Desmond, oh God, she's so old. She's fifty. Yeah, but you know, and I'm sorry, even in 1950, that wasn't that old. But it was for Hollywood. It. Oh, what do you mean was? Yeah, I know. That's what's really kind of painful. That's what's kind of painful about this movie is you look at it and you go, "Wow, nothing has changed in over half a century." No, and we'll 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 get to that. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll never get through the the, the cast. Yeah. Yeah. I I like William Holden. This he's got just enough of that world weary been there it's not going to happen i gotta keep I think trying he does, yeah I I, I I buy him as the character i just don't buy his, him as the profession and he looks good in a swimsuit just saying <laughs> okay uh, gloria swanson i oh wow this is one of those performances it is i mean god you look at it and your first thought is oh my god she's hamming it up so much because her expressions are so over the top and her body language and then you realize she's behaving exactly like a silent film star did i mean she's she's doing her on-screen persona she doesn't know how to stop and it's so dead on and it's so mesmerizing and creepy at the same time and the character is such an interesting mix of delusion and sharpness because when he talks about money you're sitting there going oh yeah she's probably got like 50 dollars left in the bank and it's all going towards his house and she's like no i own all this land i own these oil fields and i own three blocks down here at this prime real estate and i got a million in the bank it's like oh yeah and you, and you got rats in the swimming pool, okay. Yeah, well, you know, she wasn't using it, and it wasn't real. Yeah. So it turns out it actually had no way to circulate the water. So when oh. Mrs. Getty was left with the pool, it's like, oh, can't <laughs> use it, huh? Thanks. Here. Hey, you left a mirror in the bottom. Thanks a lot, JP. Yeah. Dick. Uh, uh, yeah, John Paul Getty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Jean Paul. But yeah, oh, oh, Gloria oh, oh. Swanson. There was a number of people. All those people I listed, the uh, like Mary Pickford and stuff, were offered the role, and they were horrified. And apparently, someone was Gloria Swanson, but she's also like, you know, 
this is a pretty meaty role. I think I'll take it. And I don't think she regretted it. The first time I ever saw Gloria Swanson was playing herself on the Beverly Hillbillies. Okay. I had no idea who she was. Yeah, me either. Well, and that's, you know, there's even people 20, 30 years ago that were big at the moment and nobody's like, who's that? Who? What? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, Von Stroheim does fine. Um, he yeah. and Gloria Swanson, I will say, have done, these roles are so iconic as to almost be self-parody because we will see these roles, honestly, in cartoons a lot. Yep. All the time. Over, <laughs> But I think I like him. I think he I think he does a terrific job in this. He's also I, I, I like William Holden's line, though. I pegged him as slightly cuckoo too, and I'm like, slightly <laughs> Yeah. Because he is just he is intimidating, creepy, and also pathetic. Yeah. Well, because he can't let her go. He still loves her. It's not even like the money, yeah, it's I'm, like he still loves her. I remembered from seeing this before that he was her first director. He was the guy who discovered her. I forgot that he was her first husband. Yeah, I did too. Because it's like the relationship is so bizarre that it's yeah. like, it's almost like she's forgotten it happened. Yeah. So, but yeah. Uh, Nancy Olsen as the very bright, chipper Betty Schaefer. Uh, she's a delight. And I got to say, she's a really interesting character. Yeah. She Especially is, for that era. It, well, she's a woman behind the scenes, and it feels like she's going places. And I think the yeah. movie, it's, it's the movie's one bit of optimism is that she has the ability potentially to bring Joe out of his funk and maybe get him back on track, and she might actually go somewhere too. Uh, you know? That's, yeah, and, the, and it's one of his only real moments of self-sacrifice. Yeah. When he pushes her away. I mean, he does it in the almost awful, terrible way he could. Yeah. But you can tell it's like, nope, you don't want to be around me. This is this is a bad idea. Well, I also got the very slight impression that this might end up the way it did in Singing in the Rain, where it's like, oh, she's going to be jealous of you. While she may not have as much pull as she used to, she has enough pull to get you fired or to get to, to ruin your career. She's poison. And yeah, so I... I liked her performance and i really liked the implications of the character that it's 1950 and a woman is not only capable but she at least has a role that's respected and she's got a potential for moving forward and she and she can keep up with him you know yeah. when he's like riffing or doing a bit she catches on and she throws it right back at him yeah there's she's only terrific. there's only one other actor i think is worth mentioning <laughs> for their own part and not as a a um cameo Cammy, and yeah. it is the exceedingly surprising performance by jack yeah. webb <laughs> i still have trouble believing that was jack webb because I, my god I, I have in my notes what's wrong with his face <laughs> oh he's smiling <laughs> isn't it creepy it's very creepy, and he's cheerful and energetic. And laughing. And no! <laughs> it's very Joe much like... Friday, why? I'm laughing just like a human would. And it's like, <laughs> okay, where's the white panel van? Because... Yeah, yeah, you really get... He is really trying, and that's the problem with his performance, is you get the feeling he is working so hard against his nature. I, here's the thing. I don't think that that's true of the time that this was made. I think it's true because we know every other role Jack Webb has played, i.e. Jack Webb, and yeah. we're comparing the two. I think at the yeah, time, quite fair. honestly, he played, his, he played his part fine, and it was quite honestly, people blinked and he went away, because that's pretty yeah, much what he does. he wasn't around much. And it's too bad, because he's actually one of the more fun characters. He's like, he and, and I keep forgetting her name. 
Nancy Olson. Nancy Olson. Uh, oh, Betty Schaefer. You know, yeah, Betty Schaefer. They're like the the two little sort of breaths of air and light. Yeah. In a very dark story. Yeah. And I'm always kind of sorry to see them go because, like, wait, no, come back, take me with you. <laughs> yeah, it is awfully bright for a noir, isn't it? <laughs> it's often it, there's a lot. It's mostly daytime. <laughs> it's very daytime, but a lot of it is indoors yeah. in that house where all the curtains are drawn. Yeah, and it's very much a self-contained world. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's most of the cast, except I will say Cecil B. DeMille stick to directing. Well, you know? I think he pretty much does. I think that's yeah. yeah. He's, he's not. He doesn't try to be an actor, and in this, he's, you know, he's fine. Playing he's not himself. embarrassing. Now, here's a yeah. question: Is he the best person to play himself? <laughs> no, I think they could have gotten somebody better to play him, but whatever. Yeah, but it's nice to actually see him. Apparently, he charged like ten thousand dollars to appear in the film, and then they wanted. I left this out of trivia. They wanted. They were like, "Hey, we need to do some pickup close-ups." Like, okay, that'll be another ten thousand. They're like, "Oh, uh, maybe we don't need those after all." <laughs> But then we get the cameos. I'm going to start with the least, which is the very end. We get Hedda Hopper, who, if you don't know, oh my God, was yeah. like, she was as close to Hollywood royalty as she could possibly get because she was the without columnist. Act, without actually being part of Hollywood. Yeah. She wasn't an actor, a director, a producer. Yeah, she was a journalist. And she, she was a gossip columnist. Her and Luella Parsons were the two biggest. Oh, and did they hate each other? Oh, did they ever. And you will see cartoon versions of Hedda Hopper show up in Warner Brothers cartoons and other places because yeah. she was that big a deal. And she, she was immensely powerful. Yeah, apparently they wanted both of them, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, for the end of the film, but apparently they would not appear on stage together. Yeah, that's not a big shock. Yeah, we have, and then this is really kind of sad, we have the the waxworks, as they're referred to. We have Buster Keaton, Anna Q. Oh. Nilsson, and H.B. Warner. Now, of, of those three, I think the one that's probably best known is Buster Keaton. The and, great stone face, the king of silent movies. Yeah, and they are, they, they are there to show that there are other silent film stars who are also left with nothing to do and their careers have faded. And part of me is like, wow, that was really cruel. Except in the case of H.B. Warner, it's not true. H.B. Warner went on to do a bunch of films with Billy Wilder. You Did you, you recognize him? It's from, Mr. Uh, Gower. It's a Wonderful it? Life. Yeah, it's yes, Mr. Gower. it's Mr. Gower. He was in uh, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was in uh, You Can't Take It With You. He's done a ton of talkies. Yeah. Well, Buster Keaton would show up in things. I think he's in one of the uh, Beach Blanket movies. Yes, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's also in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Yeah. The, move, the film version. Yeah. Um, Anna Q. Nilsson, I'd never heard of. Me I, I don't know who she is. Yeah. Apparently, she was a... Uh, if you look at her IMDb page, she has this long list of parts that are listed as uncredited. Oh. Huh. I, I don't know what that means. She was a background player, I guess? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe she she had a bit... I don't know. I don't know anything about her, except she was there to be a has-been, which... Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, you know, there's there's other actors in here, but they don't they have very small parts that you you blink and they go away. That really yeah. we're focusing on William Holden, Nancy Olsen, and Gloria Swanson. Those are the three yeah. biggies. And I'm amazed at how much of a film those three people can carry. But oops, getting it away. <laughs> um, but other than that, uh, so this is one of those films that I I think it's really hard for folks of our generation to actually remember the first time we've seen it. Because it's so much part of the culture, it is. It's it's so it's a living meme in effect. Well, and there are quotes from that that everyone knows, even people who've never seen the movie. Everyone knows, Mister DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. My favorite though is, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. 
I, I always like, we didn't need dialogue. We had faces. As she proves, eh, you know, some dialogue wouldn't be a bad idea. Because that last yeah. shot of her, and she's looking, yeah. you know, you're looking up her nose as she gets closer to the camera. It's like, <laughs> yes, in the silent film era, that worked great. Now, not so much. Yeah, all I could think of was, oh, God, it's Vampira from Plan <laughs> 9. <laughs> Unfair completely because, you know, Gloria Swanson's actually intimidating and disturbing in that shot. But Yeah. Well, now, see, here's the thing. So, at the time, this film was, quite honestly, a savage send-up of what Hollywood was doing to people. And one of the things that I didn't get at first... And this is apparently potentially because of the frustration that um, Billy Wilder had himself as a screenwriter before he became a director was how incredibly badly writers in particular are treated. Well, doesn't that ring true today as we are in the yeah, middle thank of... thank God we fixed that forever. Because uh, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA and potentially also the video game voice actors are about to yeah. strike as well. Why? Yeah. Because they're treated like crap. Yep, and they are indeed. This film basically comes out and says Hollywood doesn't want to make good or original stories. They just want to make pap that people will pay for. That they yeah. I there's not really any hidden metaphor there. <laughs> but they talk about the other parts. What does it do to people that are in these things? It it cho literally chews them up and spits them out and does not yep, care. Just doesn't care, just leaves them behind and it decides, well, now part of it, let's you got to be a little fair. Part of it is she is old, she's aging, so she aged up. But also, they talk about she was a nightmare to work with. At the only and at that the destroys end. A, toward the end she was, and that's when her career ended. Right. She just she, this happens to a lot of actors. They get huge, they become too hard to work with, and people don't want to work with them anymore. Yeah. and then they disappear. Yeah, or you just stop seeing them in those roles, and you start seeing I them mean, in the oh, it's straight to video. That's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> Made for TV, love you. Yeah, so those where are they now things. Yeah, but I'd, I'd, I'd never really looked at it this way before. I mostly just thought of it's like, oh, this is the guy who visits. Basically, we're doing Billy Wilder's Charles Dickens, right? She even mentioned, or he mentions yeah. the fact that she's like Miss Haversham. She yeah. is. <laughs> she really, she kind of is. She's holding on to the past and she's created a world in her mind that uh, nothing can break. Besides her, though, I really do feel like this film is kind of a modern Charles Dickens because the characters, while realistic, are also very archetypal in that way. We just don't have the street urchins, which is fine. Yeah, sorry. No, no. It, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. I got to tell you, that doesn't work. Why? Whatever else he did, Charles Dickens was big into happy endings. Oh, okay. Somebody gets a, somebody <laughs> gets a happy ending. Not everybody, but there's always something nice, even at the really dark ones, even after Bleak House. Something good happens to somebody, and in this, nothing good happens to anybody but otherwise yeah i think that there is, is some dickensian stuff yeah. in terms of like there's coincidences yep. like oh look it's you again i just happened to run into it you have to be engaged to my friend or there, there's some of that and there are the larger than life characters there are some dickensian elements to yeah it. I, I wouldn't call it really modern day dickens but there's definitely an influence and the miss havisham thing is pretty much dead on i the thing that's really interesting to me is that while this is a a film noir and and I think we're going to find that in general, film noir tend to have this. I don't. I hate to use the word cheapness, but there is a everyday 
person on the street kind of quality to them, even though she's living in that big house. We're talking about Joe, yeah. who's got like no money. Most of the characters have, you know, they're they're dealing with thugs and criminals. And there stuff. are there are rich people in film noir movies, but they're always the other people. They're the clients or the people that the main that the protagonist is visiting. Right. It's true. The protagonists in film noir usually are very working class or you know you know cheap detectives. Yeah. People who are just ahead of the bill collector, they drink cheap whiskey, they smoke cheap cigarettes. But the thing that was interesting to me about this is this that does happen here. The main character is like that and a lot of noir. But even though it doesn't seem that way, this film to me is actually really literary. It's really well written. There's a lot of depth to what's going on. There's a lot of metaphor. Some of it's very obvious and some of it really isn't. And some of it is commentary on what's going on, like what it takes to make a movie and is doing it all at once. And even the way language is used, mm-hmm. it, like, especially things like, I sometimes f- feel that the uh, the narrator voice is a little annoying, except... That's a big part of noir. There's a lot of film noir that has at least one character doing the, you know, sushi, cold fish. <laughs> that's what my ex-wife called it. Hey, yeah. that's film noir. Tell me sure, it isn't. but we already did it, so we can't do it. Yeah, anymore. yeah. So there's a lot, but a lot of the language that William Holden is using when in that is very kind of highfalutin and very elegant, more elegant than the way he speaks. Yeah. And that was surprising to me because, you know, again, we're we're really using the reality of filmmaking to show the unreality of filmmaking, right? So we're we're seeing the nuts and bolts. We're seeing, you know, points when she goes to see Samson and Delia being made by DeMille. We're seeing all the people around, the lights, the, the microphones, all that stuff. And yet what's right there? What's in the spotlight? This fantasy creature that is Norma Desmond, right? Yeah, it... It's that scene when she goes to the uh, studio, it is both pathetic and touching. Yeah. I mean, the young guard at the gate has no idea who she is. The old guard, who's obviously been there since the studio was built, is like, whoa, Miss Desmond. Oh, it's it's like, hi, Jonesy. Can you tell them to let me? Oh, of course. Go right in. And when she gets there, everyone, it's, it's so touching and kind of, it's sort of a brief moment of hope that is immediately dashed because you don't get to have hope in these movies where everyone is crowding around her and they all know who she is and they're all so excited to see her but only in this little self-contained world yeah of this of, of the the studio and you look at it and it's all these people in costume surrounding mm-hmm. her on a chair that's the director's chair so it's not unlike a throne it's and, very much like a throne and that character actor you mentioned is throwing this light this beam of light from heaven down yep. on her and two things happen that really just if you take a look make you go oh yeah right and that is it's the group right around her and nothing past it it's all yeah just, all of the other all the younger people all of the others they aren't even looking at her and did somebody you, yeah. says oh i thought she was dead and someone else says, she must be a million years old. Yeah. And then, of course, DeMille goes, yeah, what's that say about me? I was old <laughs> enough to be her father. <laughs> I I also like this, a kind of subtle thing. It's a, She's sitting there in all her elegance, and what bumps into her, what disrupts her? A microphone yeah. when it hits her hat. The sound, which she hates. Yeah. And here's the I sad thought that thing. That was a nice touch. If she hadn't, if Hollywood hadn't been done with this character, Norma Desmond, 
her speaking voice is fine. There was a lot yeah, of actors who couldn't do that because, in fact, one of them yep. they wanted to get for her role was a Polish actor who was very big in the silent era. And even 20 years later, her accent was so thick they couldn't use her. There were a bunch of them like that. That was one of the problems with Bela Lugosi. They were worried about his accent because he had a very thick, wherever the hell he was from, might have been Transylvania. He was Hungarian. Been, yeah, his Hungarian accent was very thick. And uh, there were a bunch of the others. I think Mary Pickford, her voice was kind of squeaky. Was it Douglas Fairbanks who had this really kind of nasal, unpleasant voice? I don't remember. Yeah. But it, the these guys weren't trained to use their voices, so they did. A lot of them didn't have good speaking voices. Yeah. It, there's just uh, it's one of those films that I, I think again, in a way, we do a disservice because we think we've seen it. Right. Yeah. There's so many yeah. parts we've seen. I'm ready for my, you know, Mr. Dubill, I'm ready for my close up. We all know that the scene. The body floating in the swimming pool. Yeah. And it's like, well, we think we know the story. And I've seen this film before and I've actually sat and watched it as opposed to it's on in the background. Yeah. But like usual, when we're doing it for the show, I'm looking at it differently and I'm looking at it yep. more deeply. And there's just so many layers to this film. And somehow I just missed the whole real spirit spearing of Hollywood that goes on, which seems weird because it's kind of prevalent, but I'm so caught up in the characters that I wasn't giving as much weight as Billy Wilder is. And how he got away with this, I will never know. Because he was Billy Wilder. He was an incredibly successful director. He And for good reason. I mean, we've looked at yeah. a couple of his other films here so far, yep. and they're pretty, even when they're not great, they're pretty amazing. Yep. So no, he's, He is terrific, and he made Hollywood a lot of money. That's how he could do this. And he was known for more cynical stuff. I just, just yeah. There's just so much going on, and with Wilder, this is not a, this shouldn't be a surprise. But it's, no, it's incredibly successful. If I had a chance, if this popped up in one of the local theaters as a you know rerun or whatever, because they actually did that in 1960, it got shown in New York, and there was such a great response that they put it back out in theaters, and people went to oh, see wow. it again. But if this is a film that if I had a chance to see in a theater, I would totally go. Because seeing this, a nice big print on a big screen, that would be awesome. Yeah, it does, especially to me, the shots inside the house. Yeah. That house is amazing. Yeah. And all the way it's, it really is, uh, when you were saying she's sitting on the throne at the set, in that house, it's like it's a temple to her. Oh, yeah. And Max is her high priest. She's like this fallen goddess. What does that make the monkey? Oh, wait. The, the, yeah, the, no. the, the sacrifice. <laughs> I mean, my guess is the monkey's supposed to be the child, right? That she never I would had. Assume. Yeah. She never, yeah. I don't yeah. put any um, uh, weight into what <laughs> Willie Wilder said at that party. <laughs> I think I think he was messing with her. I yeah, saw that as like, that has to go into the trivia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, uh, I did have a couple of questions. Oh. Is Norma an innocent victim? Oh, boy. Innocent of what? What do you mean? Well, so is she... All the horrible things she ends up doing, are those all because of what Hollywood did to her? Or is there any part of her that's to blame as well? We don't know, because we didn't see what went, what happened to her at, at, at the height of her career. Some, I mean, was she... She's clearly a massive egomaniac, mm -hmm. a narcissist. She's deluded... Uh, desperate to hang on to the past, but is that, you know, it's like, do you blame the drug addict? She was addicted to that that fame, to that life, mm -hmm. and they kept giving her more and more of it. And that's, yeah, and I think there's even a line in the film, and I forget who says it, but it's something like, 
This is what a room full of press agents will do to somebody over the years. I think Cecil B. DeMille says it. Yes, yes, he does. He said that you'd be, you'd be amazed. You'd be, it's terrifying what a room full of press agents can do to you. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's foremost what this film is tackling. It's all the other Hollywood stuff that when you stop and think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, they treat writers like crap. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is all fake and none of this means but, anything and blah, 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 blah. But it's a good question because I think it's also in some ways a character study because this is what happens to someone who cannot let go of their glory days, who can't yeah. let go of the past, and worse, has an enabler like Max, who keeps writing her fan mail, and apparently she never notices the handwriting is the same on every one. Yeah. But why would she? Someone who's delusional, she it's what she wants to see. Yeah. So of course she see, she believes it. I I think in a lot of ways she is an innocent victim because in a because Hollywood produced a kind of fame that never existed before a level of fame that was worldwide, that was literally millions of people that you weren't trying to conquer. Okay, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) There is a distinction, it's true. I mean, come on, if you're talking celebrity, Genghis Khan, man, everybody knew him. But like, you know, we're talking, I say, let's go to the 19th century. The most famous you could be is probably an author. How many people actually ever met the author or knew what they they looked like? They were actors. Edith Siddons was but, famous. But you only saw them if you saw them in a play. So but you you'd ha- hear about them, and they would be written about. Oh, sure, but were, are they anywhere near the level of movie stars? No, no, no. I mean, maybe they would be known in Europe, and maybe, maybe some they would get over to another continent, over to America. But no, the, gl- the level of global fame, I mean, they talk about a Maharaja came to buy one of her stockings. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that's unprecedented. And so I, if we're wrong, by the way, people, let us know. Yeah, I, I think that that because it was so new that in some ways nobody understood the damage it would cause, but also nobody would cared. Like as long as it sold tickets, that's all that mattered. So in a way, she's I do think of her as a victim, and I think, like you called him, Max is her enabler. Max is doing her no favors at all. No, he's, and obviously he thinks he is. He's trying to protect her, but he's part of the system. So he is, his mind is is just as damaged. He's as shaped by it as anyone else. Yeah. And And you notice how easily he snaps back into director mode at the end? Yep. When she's come, oh, God, that sequence on the stairs where she thinks it's, She's being filmed, and Max is immediately, do you have the lights? That's good. No, aim up there. You know, he immediately takes over, and they all listen to him. They can't not. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Exactly. (laughs) I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to give most of the, the blame on this to Hollywood itself, and for just the, just lack of understanding of what they were doing to people. Now, I think they know now, and I think they still don't care. <laughs> they still don't care, as no. long as it makes them money. And let's face it, the audiences, we didn't care. No. It's like, oh, this this actor's not making movies anymore. Huh. Well, what else is out? Yeah. it's And we also demand things. We see them in public. We want things yep. from them. Yep. We think they owe us. Yeah. It's, it's like, hi, oh, no, take a picture with me. Give me a piece of your clothing. Sign my butt. Teach me to read. <laughs> Here's a question. I, I'm guessing you're, I know the answer that you're going to give me, but I'd like you to think just a second about it. Okay. Would this movie work in color? 
I think it could. I just don't think it would work as well. I think the black and white, I think the shadow, the whole shadow and light, and the fact that black and white are kind of extremes in this, mm-hmm. uh, I think that works. I think it, it's a much better way of dividing like reality from the fantasy. I think it works very well, too. However, some of the things that have been done with color in the last 20 years, 20 years I think could be make this really interesting oh. in a new production. Okay. And boy, could you see this working with like somebody who is like a child star or a teen idol or whatever from only like 20 years ago and this whole thing being played out? It would still work. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. I, yeah, absolutely. The dynamic still exists. Yeah. We know that. Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to know, did you think uh, early on in the film, not towards the end where she has the gun, but early on, yeah. do you think Norma really attempted suicide uh, I don't know, because we're not really given a lot of information. My guess is no. Yeah, I'm betting. I mean, she probably like scratch scraped her arms up a bit with the razor. But the thing is, if someone really wants to kill themselves, they kill themselves. Right. Uh, and she's so melodramatic, and it was just such a narratively appropriate thing for her to do as part of the script. Right. That she hears in her head. I don't think so. Well, and also we have all the doorknobs have been removed because Madam yeah, they, does this occasionally. And yet Madam yeah. is functioning. She's not, she doesn't appear melancholy, even if somehow deeply inside she is. She seems in control and watching her movies and everything's wonderful. But yeah, so I, that was my she, feeling too. It's also what gets me is despite the sort of, she's supposed to be sort of pathetic and clownish or whatever. Right. Well, she has real power about her you know but you keep wondering why doesn't william holden leave initially when she's talking to him and the answer is i don't think he can yeah i think she's like holding him there with her voice and her presence well you'll want to know what's going to happen yeah and he's he's horrified and he's fascinated and here's the only thing that i will say to support your not believing william holden as a writer is that joe gillis can't see the story in front of him to write yeah he can't see where it's going <laughs> but yeah, it, no but i mean it. he could be writing what is going on it, true this, this would be a great movie <laughs> in fact we're watching it yeah. that yeah. would have been <laughs> well, that would have been meta there's that, there's that voice again <laughs> <laughs> tune in next week when you'll hear a voice say <laughs> yeah i yeah and i think i had one yeah one last question i had was do we buy betty falling for joe you know, I wondered about that too. Okay, sure, he's William Holden. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a lot of that there. And who is there, her fiance? Oh, Jack. Yeah, when you come on, look at the look at your man. Now look at me. You know, it's one of those things. <laughs> yes, she uh, looked at me. Honest, it was a look on, she gave men often. <laughs> Honestly, no, I don't buy it. I because in a lot of ways he he's a real jerk to her repeatedly. Yeah. But the heart, and also, you know, she's 22 and he's at least 30. He says, I mean, he says so. Yeah. I mean, that that, that much distance isn't so bad. But I actually, I was thinking he was more like 35 or aiming towards 40. And that was one of the problems. I think he actually says his age at some point. Yeah, it's fine. I, I had a little trouble with that too. I, yeah, I, I, she seems very sincere as a character, except 
I'm I'm trying to see what she sees in him too. I think all we really needed, and this is like maybe my only complaint, is we don't get to see any of what Joe actually did that would have kept him around in a similar situation as Norma's in, right? Yeah. Past his prime or whatever. It's like he must have done something really good, which is why he still even has an agent. And we don't know what that was. No. So we haven't seen any evidence that he's any good except what she sees in him. And let's face it, she could be wrong. Yeah. But um, yeah, that, I also I am also curious. Did you notice where she grew up? Who? Betty? No. Oh, was it Ohio? No. No, she grew up. She grew up two blocks in the studio. She grew up on Lemon Grove Street. Oh, which she a makes Lemon me Grove wonder, kid. <laughs> I was wondering if she was a Lemon Grove kid. <laughs> don't look it up, people. Just oh, don't, because sadly those don't. movies are now on YouTube. Thank you, Cash Flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah good old Cash Flag. It I just. Got it. Uh, yeah, I so there's something I, I also didn't notice the first time around is the parallel between Joe's story and Norma's story because it's basically the same thing. He just doesn't realize that what she is is what he's becoming, and maybe or, that or what he could be, maybe. and maybe that's one of the reasons he ends up not leaving in the end is his realization. Yeah, or at least he says he's not going to leave until he's finally like, nope. You know what? Betty I'm loves done. me. I'm going. Is that he's like you know, except he? It's not. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say you know. I'm really not that different from her. And I, if she can't get out of this, having been as big as she was, and I was never that big, maybe I can't either. But he's already pushed Betty away in one is one of his only moments of actual self-sacrifice. And a great where, shot, by the way, when she leaves oh, through the gate of God. that house. Great shot. Absolutely. It's incredible deep focus shot. You know, there's her friend in the car. There's her. Then they're back, there's Joe in the doorway. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. It's some, and some, by the way, some of the blocking in this is so clever. When he's trying to leave the first time and he's in the tuxedo and he's got the watch chain, the clothes catch on the door. The clothes she bought him won't let him leave. Yeah, the watch chain. Because he's yep. in a, a monkey Tuck. suit. Oh, yeah, it ooh. is all about the big monkey. <laughs> <laughs> this film is all about the monkey. You heard it's it all, here first. Yeah, big monkey is behind all of it. Uh, <laughs> uh oh, Bumpy, you might have uh, you might have some competition there. <laughs> our new yep, yep. our new mascot, our new mascot is Big Monkey. No, there's no. We're sticking with we're sticking with Bumpy. Uh, real Damn. quick, I know you have at least heard the musical. I saw it. Oh, I saw the stage show, and um, I remember almost nothing. It, it it now this was Andrew Lloyd Webber, and it was later Andrew Lloyd Webber, which means there was one theme that he repeats ninety times, yeah. and, and I remember that, and it was part of a song called "She Gave the World New Ways to Dream." Okay. I, and the rest of it, they were just really impressed with themselves that they had this set that with a swimming pool on it that he could fall into and die in. I, the, I saw some clips, and the guy who plays Joe in the in the stage play was was built pretty nice, which is always a a, a plus. Uh -huh. But I gotta say, the songs that I listened to, and I listened to like three of them, awfully upbeat for film noir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, like, it totally has. I don't. I, I wonder if Weber ever saw the movie. I did uh, the ones I saw though. I guess the original show. I don't know or wh yeah. whatever production had Glenn Close. Man, can she sing? Oh, is she good? She's got a great voice, and she has that. She's the gestures and stuff she's doing are pure silent movie. Um, it was just such a weird choice to make a musical out of. Yeah, like, maybe I know. if Sondheim had done it, because he's got that kind of edge and that kind of. He's got that dark side. Yeah, yeah. maybe he could. But Andrew Lloyd, what's his? Yeah. 
I mean, uh, let's face Andrew it. Andrew Lloyd Marmoset? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody does it like a steam train. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I kind of knew this, this show was going to go a little long. Do you have anything else you want to get in before we uh, render our final verdict? One of the other scenes that always sticks with me is when the police are interrogating Norma after she shot Joe in her bedroom and Hedda Hopper is sitting on her bed dictating the story on her phone. Yeah. She's like 10 feet away, and she's talking about fading star, or Norma Desmond. Like, my God! Well, what does that say about Hedda Hopper? (laughs) Exactly. That's the thing. I also was wondering, Hedda, do you realize how bad this makes you look? She may not have cared. I don't know enough about uh, Hedda Hopper, but let's face it. That's like the final statement about Hollywood right there. Oh, look, we 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 can still use her for something. Yep. Even though yep. she's in pain, even though she's, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Even Puffs. though this is a goddamn tragedy, I, uh, I can use this to get a good byline. Yeah. Yep. Yep, that's about all I got. The finish. So, Max. Yeah. I, roughly, I, I, not, I don't need an exact number, but roughly how many times have you seen this movie over the years? A few? Honestly, a lot? Pro- only a few. Yeah. It's not an easy movie to watch. Because it is so painful, some of it. Yeah, it's so beautiful and it's it, it's so engaging, but it's also so sad. Well, it's been what seventy three years. Yeah, this is showing a Hollywood of the nineteen fifties, technically the nineteen forties, because you know post yeah. uh, post uh, production, etc. Keep flailing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about it today? Does it hold up today? Oh God, yeah. that's one of the things that's so sad about it is you look at it and you go wow how little has changed writers are still treated like crap women are considered worthless when they get above 22 we we just cast people aside the town just destroys people and nobody cares yeah i i think it's as relevant as it ever was what do you think i totally agree i think i love the performances in this i love the way it looks it is one of those films where if it didn't exist, it somehow kind of would anyway. It would have to, yeah. It's just, it, it, it's so woven of the thing that it's representing as to be inextricable, if that, if that makes sense. So the fact that things like this would show up in cartoons or other films or TV shows for decades to come. There was a Columbo episode that was very obviously based on this. There was a woman who had been a music singing star and who is now living in her own fantasy world, watching her own movies. Watching her own movies. That's right. And I think she wants to do a comeback. Was it Janet Lee? I can't remember. I think it was. It was one of the two of them. It was not Vivian. I can tell you that. So it was Janet Lee playing that part. Yeah. But it was it's Nora Desmond, Norma Desmond all over again, you know? And she also has the partner who's not her butler, but who's there and trying to like, you know, keep her calm and not he's not yeah. trying to get give yeah. her a comeback or anything, but she's all aiming for this. And yeah. so this would continue and probably still continues. So we still yep. probably get references to this plot. And so it's one of those plots you're like, did what is this based on something? It's like, no. I mean, it's based on reality. It's based on, yeah, it's based on the world. Yeah, how about that? So I think it's a great film. If you're not somebody who generally likes old films, I think it's worth watching. If you, Yeah, I think this will still work. It's paced well. It moves along nicely. And we lucked out because the original 
negatives shot on silver nitrate had uh, long since been lost. They were gone yeah, and they found dissolved. a decent print that they were able to resurrect and, and make new again. And so you can see probably better than you would have seen it in 1950, quite honestly. Very likely. I, yeah, I highly recommend this film. I don't find it as sad as Max. In other words, it doesn't affect me as much as it does Max. Um, and I can probably, I probably watched it more often than you have because I think it's fascinating and it doesn't, that part of it doesn't bother me. But having watched it again and seeing those parallels between the two main characters and the stark representation of fame and its ravages and Hollywood and how heartless and soulless that whole thing is just makes me want to become an actor. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, no. So yeah, yeah, two two definite votes for that. Yep. But Big time. one other we vote have we have question. is for you folks to yeah. answer our poll question. And it's an easy one this week. Or, or is it? We want to know what is your favorite film noir? I don't care when it was made, if it's considered film noir. I don't care if it's American or if it's foreign. Dave. Because um, who knows? Maybe there's some good Japanese noir out there that I don't know about. Um, mm. Or there might even be one that's going to show up later in the series. Maybe. Be. But do let us know. And how can you let us know? Well, you can let us know in a number of ways, such as emailing us directly to us at MaxMikeMovies.com, heading over to the website at MaxMikeMovies.com, where you and Vince can have a lovely conversation about penguins and walruses and all other things that are in Canada. Don't dispute us. Don't look it up. It's true. Yeah. All of our episodes are there for your perusal. You can listen right from the website if you'd like, or if there's a podcast app that you like, we're there too. doesn't matter which one it is at this point. I think we are literally on all of them. We're under Max Mike Movies. Lastly, if you go to Facebook, we are, of course, there as Max Mike Movies, and you can answer the poll question there if you wish, as most people tend to do. But we are just getting started walking down the dark street or walking the street dark or darking the street walk or hitting the street walker or what stop stop before you hurt yourself i think i did max yeah. how are we continuing <laughs> yeah. this series are we going to stay in the old old days of black and white hollywood or are we going to go somewhere no, no. else we're going into glorious technicolor Ooh. although not that far away we're just going into the 1970s oh yes we're doing Uh, the, the Goodbye Girl? That's not a noir nope, film. That was The Long Goodbye. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Okay. Yep, yep. This was another, uh, I believe, I always forget if it's Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett. I'll look it up. Oh. Uh, adaptation with, start with, of course, the great detective Philip Marlowe, mm. played by, well, someone who kind of surprised me. Maybe he'll surprise you. I'll, we'll let you know next week. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, and join us again, won't you, to make one big us. Indeed. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Music